Chapter thirty five of the Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That is a fact. Do you know anything about tent life? I wonder if you have really any idea of how pretty a spot its white wings can enclose. Had you known nothing of it, and been able to step inside of young wards when the finishing touches had been given to it, you could hardly have failed of being charmed. Wonders had been done with it. In the first place, the floor was covered with matting of a neat pattern and pretty colouring. Joseph Ward had not aspired to any such elegance, but a motherly neighbour who had five boys, gone from her out into the world of business, had watched the young man's enterprise with almost a mother's interest, had counselled matting by all means, and enforced her advice by dragging out from her capacious attic enough to cover the tent floor. Then every member of the Fenton cottage seemed to have become individually interested in tent number twenty-five, which name Joe had given it as soon as the stakes were set. Only he knew the reason therefore. Caroline had washed and ironed and mended certain sheets, spreads, etc., rented from the association at a low figure because unlaundried, and then had spent parts of two days in putting into completest order the cots which occupied all available space, after which she was persistent in her statements that curtains were needed to divide the roomy tent into compartments. "'Such nonsense!' declared Mrs. Fenton, "'as if nobody ever set up a tent before, and as if it would ever come to anything. You are all growing wild over that boy's folly.' Then she went down into the depths of her trunk, and fished therefrom certain old-fashioned chins curtains of delicate pattern, which she admitted she had stuffed in, moved thereto by some dim notion that housekeeping in the woods might demand something of the sort. But the well-furnished cottage had not needed them. They were pronounced by a chorus of eager voices, "'The very thing for Joe's tent!' And Mrs. Fenton, still insisting that it was all nonsense, sewed steadily away into midnight, shortening, turning, hemming, puckering, until she had the wherewith to convert the one large room into five. People who go to Chautauqua and watch the crowds pouring in to demand abiding places learn to economize space. Young Robert caught the spirit of the hour, and himself cut and trimmed and fashioned a lovely hat-rack, composed of the natural branches of a brave young tree that had to be sacrificed to make room for a new house. This he skilfully set in one corner of the tent, near the entrance. Paul Adams looked in upon them one day, while two or three of the helpers were at work, asked a few questions as to space and intentions, then, after a consultation or two with Mr. Tucker, and the laying aside of certain pieces of lumber, pronounced by that worthy of no account, he left his Latin grammar unopened for the space of one evening, and sawed and hammered and planed, and brought around the next morning a table that exactly fitted into a certain spot in the tent. Then, forsooth, it must have a spread. And who should become interested in that but Effie Butler herself, concocting out of a cast-off white muslin a ruffled and plaited garment that revolutionized the plain pine boards, making them into such a thing of beauty that Paul Adams stood and stared at it in amaze, and wondered in his heart if his mother knew how to make such a rig, and felt a dawning sense of respect for Miss Effie Butler, 
while Mrs. Fenton was elated and declared she should not regret any of the trouble now, for the enterprise had actually startled Effie Butler into doing something useful. So the tent furnishings grew. When the separating curtains went up, Caroline, finding more than enough, confiscated one and curtained off a corner by itself for toilet purposes but it was left for the little Amy to add the finishing touches which, after all, glorified the whole. What were they? Oh, I can hardly tell. A few yards of cheesecloth, a yard or two of blue cambric, and lo, the toilet stand and the openings designed for windows and doors blossomed into beauty. Even the improvised hat-rack came in for its share of burnishing, and when James Ward, directed all the bright, happy afternoon by Amy's skilled eyes and tongue, had finished his work with hammer and tacks, and stepped down from his perch, all the helpers stood back and exclaimed and admired. "'Look at it,' said Mrs. Fenton. "'Here we have been at work for two days, and the child comes in with her bits of cambric and her needle, and in two hours transforms the place so that we don't recognize it.' "'I have just added the cake and the sweetmeats,' declared Amy with her happy little laugh. "'But what would they be worth without the more substantial dishes?' "'The beds, for instance,' said Joe dryly, but he was well pleased with it all. These days were bringing unusual experiences to Joe. It was the first time since his mother kissed him good-bye that he ever remembered receiving kindly help from others.' Much of the constant help that his father had given him had been rendered in such a fashion that the boy had not recognized it as help, and here were all these people at work for him with as much energy as though they expected to reap results. Part of the time Joe did not know whether he liked the new order of things or not. He felt in a constant state of embarrassment. There was another who was embarrassed somewhat. Accidentally, Dr. Monteith had discovered something of the history of the tent, discovered also that the loan of twenty-five dollars had given Mr. Fenton an influence over young Ward that probably no other person possessed. The instant question became, how can that influence be turned to account for the boy? Seeking out Mr. Fenton during an hour of leisure, Dr. Monteith overwhelmed him by presenting the case to him. "'I'm sure I don't know how to do anything for boys,' he said in a tone that was almost pitiful in its pleading. "'My own boy is more than I can understand. I've never felt that I was the proper guide for him in anything. It has worried me ever since he was born. I don't want to have influence over other boys. I don't know what to do for them.' "'Yes, but my friend, you have influence over them, you see. There is no possible way of escaping from it.' this young fellow because of your kindness to him the world has not bestowed much of that article on him i fancy has concluded that you are the best friend he has and he is almost ready to do anything you suggest that is a heavy responsibility in connection with just such a young man as he i should think it was said mr fenton wiping his forehead i tell you i don't know what to do with it there is no reason for it either I'm nothing to the boy. I only lent him a little money, a mere trifling business transaction, nothing to think of twice. Look here, my friend. Did you lend the boy the money because you recognized in the matter an excellent business investment, or did you lend it because you wanted to hold out a helping hand to one who was very low down the hill, and who seemed for the first time intended to climb? 
I suppose, said Mr. Fenton, dropping his eyes and blushing as though he had been caught in a meanness, I suppose I was trying an experiment that I thought might help him a little. I hadn't much hopes that it would amount to anything. Exactly. Don't you suppose the boy understands? He knows you did not do it for an investment. He is not used to kindly deeds. You have the boy's heart somewhere in your hands. What can I do for him? said Mr. Fenton, mopping his forehead again and looking actually frightened. He had felt the responsibility of his own boy so greatly, how could he have it added to? What does he need? What he needs, said Dr. Monteith, with a gravely sweet smile, is to accept of the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him forever. It is the only way of safety and honor for him as for others. Yes, said Mr. Fenton, the nervous flush on his face rising to his forehead. I knew you would say something like that. Now you see, I'm not the one. I don't know the first thing about helping a fellow in any such direction, or influencing him. May I ask my friend whose fault it is that you do not? It was a gently put question. The tone was tender and grave, yet it carried such weight with it that it seemed to Mr. Fenton's conscience almost like a blow. I suppose it is my own fault, he said slowly. But, Professor, tell me this, how can I direct anybody on a road that I know nothing at all about? I don't know. It was all the answer that this question received, positively spoken, accompanied by the gravest of looks. There were no other words, but the look added nearly as plainly as words could have done, Does that view of the case remove your responsibility? Meantime, the white cots in the tent were not spread in vain. There were several reasons for this. In the first place, it had been made, as I have told you, most inviting. A few shillings, in New York parlance, a few hours of skilled labor, a careful expenditure of space, an unusual display of taste, had made fairyland out of the prosaic canvas walls. The pretty Amy was daily adding to these effects, by bringing mosses and ferns and scarlet leaves and berries, wherewith, in lieu of pictures, to decorate the canvas walls. Who is so foolish as to suppose that men, most men, care for none of these things? Many of them have not the least idea that they care for such trifles. Yet the most obtuse specimen among them is well aware that one room which contains all the necessaries connected with brief living he hates, and another, containing not another article that he is capable of mentioning, he likes. Why? He doesn't know. Ten chances to one, it is the bit of blue or pink cambric, or cheap Nottingham lace, or bright mosses and berries, that he has not seen at all, and might affect to despise if he did. Certain persons who had reared tents for renting at Chautauqua ignored this phase of human nature, and the consequence was that young Ward's cots were all rented before theirs. Another reason was he had friends, Dr. Monteith, for instance. When the boats came in laden, and the question of importance was, where shall we lodge? As hotels and cottages filled with permanent guests became out of the question, it was easy to suggest a specially neat and well-managed tent on Lake Avenue. Still a third and all-important reason was the fact that crowds of people, unexpectedly immense crowds, poured into Chautauqua and filled every available space. 
Of course, the five white carefully made cots found pleased occupants. Five dollars a night for the privilege of occupying young Ward's tent. At that rate, how long would it take for the boy to secure twenty-five dollars with which to pay his note? What an enormous price to pay for a night's lodging, groaned the uninitiated. Well, it is true there were cheaper cots than that. They could be had in some of the tents for fifty cents each. But there were some, many it transpired, who chose the exquisite neatness, the careful conveniences, the constant attention to comfort, the touches of refinement seen everywhere, and cheerfully paid the dollar a day. "'Of course you needn't sleep in them unless you want to,' would Joe say innocently to any who hinted that his cots were high-priced. "'There's cheaper ones, but there's been fifty cents a day spent in extra work on these, and we calculate to keep them looking just so all the time. And whatever the just so covered, it took the fancy of the people.' The sensation with which Joe Ward fingered over the first twenty-five dollars he had ever earned may possibly by some be imagined, but it cannot be described. What to do with it was a question that kept him awake for half of one night. To give it to Mr. Fenton was his first thought. His second was to wait for that until the second twenty-five was earned. There was almost no risk about it. The first week of the assembly was hardly over, and here were the crisp bills representing a quarter of a hundred. What did he want to do with it? Mrs. Fenton would surely have forgiven him, could she have known that he just longed to enclose it in an envelope and send it to his father. The thought of the elder ward's utter amazement and incredulity made Joe laugh aloud in the middle of the night, and caused his brother to wonder what in the world was the matter. Dreaming aloud, said Joe, and he laughed again. What fun it would be! His father had told him dozens of times that there was no hope of his ever earning a cent. Joe liked to disappoint people. It was a great struggle. He argued the question for one mortal hour, told himself several times that he was a fool, and turned over and turned his pillow, and answered his invisible opponent snappishly, to the effect that, of course, he would have another twenty-five, and there wasn't the least danger of his making a slip, and of course he meant to take up his note, never meant anything more in his life. Then he lay still for a while, his eyes fixed on the strongly defined rafters, and at last, sure by the steady heavy breathing that James was asleep, he expressed his determination out loud. No, sir, Joe Ward, you don't do it. He trusted you, and you were never trusted before in your life, not even by your father. He couldn't help it, to be sure. There was nothing to trust, but the other one did it. And he shall be paid to-morrow. Not one hour later will I wait. I'll earn the other twenty-five, and maybe a trifle more. In fact, I know I shall. I see a way to do it, and this first one shall be in Mr. Fenton's pocket before nine o'clock to-morrow morning. Then Joe went to sleep. It was owing to this resolution that he dressed himself with unusual care the next morning, even waiting to blacken his boots. The occasion was a peculiar one. He was to take up his first note. Suppose it was twenty-five hundred, he said, counting the bills over lingeringly once more. I'd like to pay out money, as true as I live I would, always supposing I had it to pay. There is a kind of excitement about it. 
I just believe I shall pay out a twenty-five hundred yet. Twenty-five thousand, maybe. Folks do. This wild flight of fancy made his eyes sparkle. A close student of human nature, watching him, would have been sure that Chautauqua had either created or awakened in this boy a spirit of enterprise. In the near future, the boy with his twenty-five dollars will develop into the man with his twenty-five hundred, and they will seem as nothing to him compared with these five crisp bills. You understand, I suppose, that during this time our young businessman was an inmate of the Fenton Cottage, his proportion of the expenses duly arranged for by his father. It was not, therefore, a rare thing to meet Mr. Fenton. Yet the boy's cheeks glowed with excitement. He put on an air as of complete indifference, as though this little business transaction were an everyday occurrence, and sauntered into the sitting-room after Mr. Fenton. Once there he talked about the weather, the meetings, the crowds that constantly gathered, and even the hopeful look of the peach crop, before he reached the grand object of the interview. "'Well, sir,' he said at last, laying down the book he had been opening and shutting for the last five minutes, "'I've come to take up that note this morning.' "'What?' said Mr. Fenton in genuine astonishment. "'My note, you know, that I gave you. I'm ready now to take it up.' "'Why,' said Mr. Fenton, "'it is only a few days since you borrowed the money. "'You can't be ready to pay it so soon.' "'I am ready,' repeated the young businessman, "'and he gravely and tenderly counted out the precious bills for the last time. "'Then he dived into his vest pocket and produced four shining coppers, "'laying the whole, with an air of great satisfaction, "'on the table in front of Mr. Fenton. "'What is all this?' said that bewildered gentleman. When Joe gravely explained that that was, as nearly as he could calculate, the interest due on the loan, the face of the elder gentleman relaxed in a broad smile. The ludicrous side of the whole transaction presented itself to his mind, relieving the embarrassment. "'It is the most satisfactory investment I ever made in my life,' he said heartily. "'I have been almost as much pleased with your success and especially with the vim in which you went to work, as I would have been if you had been my own boy. Then, a memory of Dr. Monteith's hints coming forcibly to him, the embarrassment returned. How was he to say anything toward helping this boy to the place where, according to Professor Monteith, he ought to stand? I wonder to what extent the gracious Spirit of God hovers near to suggest and help those who never ask for his help. It would be perhaps a difficult question to answer, but it would certainly seem as though the tender spirit, of whose very existence as a helper Mr. Fenton was lamentably ignorant, chose wise words for him to say at that moment. Nothing would have been easier than for him to have utterly disgusted the young man before him by the repetition of a few platitudes on a subject about which he himself was ignorant." to have talked with young Ward about religion from a platform which professed itself as above that on which the young man stood, would either have irritated or hopelessly amused him. What Mr. Fenton did say was, "'Joe, they say that you and I are both working on the wrong road.' "'On the wrong road?' repeated Joe, surprised yet complacent." There was nothing offensive in being quoted as on the same road with the eminently respectable and thoroughly respected businessman. Joe recognized it as a compliment. 
Yes, said Mr. Fenton, fingering his bills in an embarrassed manner. Then suddenly he raised his eyes and looked full into the young fellow's face. Since he had undertaken this plain speaking, he meant to carry it out, new business though it was to him, and something of the great importance of the subject served to add gravity to his words and subdue his embarrassment. They say, my boy, that we ought to be on the road with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't know but it is true. Anyway, it is worth our while to think about it. Said Joe, that is a fact. He had not intended to answer thus. The words seemed almost forced from him by reason of his great surprise. He always answered all such appeals in a thoroughly amused, good-natured manner. But, for some reason, Mr. Fenton's singular way of putting it took hold of him. That is a fact, he repeated, still in utmost gravity, and he put on his hat and went out, without saying another word. The thing had never impressed him as a fact before. He walked the length of the avenue, down toward the lake, still with the grave, preoccupied look on his face, and then he said aloud once more, That is a fact. End of chapter 35